Welcome to episode five of the Adrenaline Podcast. This is your host, John Paul. Got a great show today. Uh, have a great interview, a long interview, so I'm not going to take too much time talking on my own today with Lars Tiffany, head coach of the University of Virginia lacrosse team. We talk about all kinds of subjects, including his role on the rules committee uh, which is a major topic of conversation right now in men's collegiate lacrosse. His role as assistant coach uh, with the Iroquois national team just coming off the world championships last month in Israel. And, uh, and of course, his role uh, as the head coach at the University of Virginia and following in the steps of uh, such a legend in Dom Starja, who also happened to be Coach Tiffany's coach back when he was a player at Brown University. Um, and a lot of subtopics uh, off of those main points. It's a, uh, it's a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Um, I was entertained, uh, had fun talking to Lars, and, and learned a lot as well. So, uh, so I hope you get as much out of it as I do. A couple things to touch on really quick before we get to the interview. Um, one, I uh, had an opportunity to listen to one of these episodes. This is the fifth um, and had an opportunity to listen to one of them the other day and noticed the intro music and sounds of the surf pounding on the shore. And, you know, this is the Adrenaline Podcast, which is a, a you know, California-based group that I've been working with for the past year or so uh, among my many projects. And so a lot of people assume when they see me doing this and they uh, working for Adrenaline and, and um, hear the the intro to the show, I've had a lot of people say, oh, when did you move to California? I haven't. I'm still in Michigan. We have beaches and waves here, by the way, but I'm still in Michigan and, uh, and not leaving anytime soon. But I'll tell you what, I, I, uh, I enjoy my trips out there, especially in the wintertime. That's certainly one of the benefits of being associated with these guys. Um, neat thing that came up for me today that I want to touch on before we get to the interview as well is... I was recently asked to serve on the inaugural Hall of Fame committee for the MCLA. And if you don't know, the MCLA is the major um, college club lacrosse organization in the country with over 200 teams and a couple divisions. I was uh, the club coach at Michigan before we were a varsity program for 14 years. I played club lacrosse at Michigan. Actually, I played there before there was an MCLA. Uh, and, uh, and coached there for 14 years as a club coach before I spent six as the varsity coach, um, was on the board of directors of the MCLA for 11 years and was the president of the MCLA for six. So, um, that organization, which I think is such an important part of the game of college lacrosse, uh, is very near and dear to my heart. It was a big part of um, my career path, a huge part of my career path, uh, presented a ton of opportunities to me. Um, and in reality of all the hundreds of guys I've had the privilege of coaching here at Michigan, the majority of those guys were, were MCLA players and, and club players. And, 
Um, and those guys absolutely love their experience. They're all huge supporters of the varsity program now. And, um, and, but they, they love their experience playing MCLA lacrosse back in the day. And we were also very fortunate to win a number of national championships and be really successful. But, um, even the guys who didn't compete quite at that level for us back then love that experience. So special to me to be asked to be on this hall of fame committee. The MCLA is, I think 22 years old now, and it's time. It's time that we start to acknowledge some of the people who were integral in building such a great uh, segment of American lacrosse and also the athletes who were so good uh, at, especially in the early days, which is probably the guys we'll start with um, in, the, in, in the first few classes, uh, who, who really put the MCLA on the map. And I'm excited to be part of that group of, of five of us um, who are going to be charged with putting together these first few Hall of Fame classes. It's a, it's a privilege. It's an honor. And, and I'm looking forward to getting into that work. And the other guys on the, in the group are, are Doug Carl, <clears throat> Doug Horn, Tony Scazzaro, and Alex Smith. Um, <clears throat> I worked uh, and coach. I worked with on the board and coached against. Doug Carl and Tony Scazzaro. Doug was a longtime coach at Sonoma State in California, and Tony is still his coach at Texas A&M. He's been there forever and has been on the board and former Pat, and he's also a past president of the MCLA. Uh, Doug Horn has been a longtime off and on board member, and he was the first national tournament coordinator for the MCLA, uh, lives in Georgia. And then Alex Smith was a, uh, was a great goaltender for Colorado State and then coach at Colorado State, played for the Denver Outlaws. Um, Alex won national championships as a player and a coach at CSU and is now coaching at St. Michael's College in Vermont. So is, is now a varsity head coach at, at the college level. So a great group of five guys. We're looking forward to getting to work pretty soon on, on putting together that first uh, MCLA inaugural Hall of Fame class. And, and I'm sure we'll get plenty of suggestions on, on who should be part of that first class. There are a lot of deserving people. Um, on to today's show. Uh, as I said, great interview with Lars Tiffany. Uh, and when we come back, that's going to be our focus. Focus, 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 focus. And we are back with our guest in episode five of the Adrenaline Podcast, Lars Tiffany. Lars, thanks for being here today. John Paul, it's always wonderful to spend time with you. Uh, usually, better time in a restaurant. Um, That's right. Best foodies of the lacrosse world. Yeah. Uh, but Although you have a you have a unique foodie taste as a vegetarian. True. Right? And, True. And funny it's, uh, for me because I've had so I know of three vegetarians in the lacrosse coaching world. We've had this discussion before. Keith Euchre, who's now the head coach yeah. at McDaniel College in Maryland, was on my staff, and and Euchre is a vegetarian. Mike Allen who's a head coach at UCSB, used to be at oh, Towson, right. played at Princeton. His dad's Dave Allen. Mike, uh, <laughs> Mike is a vegetarian. And you. So there's three of them, all pretty successful coaches. There must be something to it. I don't know. I know coach Allen had my dream job forever. I mean, I was like, to live in Santa Barbara and to be it's, able to coach this great game. It's ridiculous. <laughs> when, when we were, you know, when we were a club, we'd go out there and play them every other year out there. And we'd always be going out in February. And I had to, I had to make sure I counted the guys getting back on the bus exactly. every exactly. single time, right? I mean, they have their dorms around the beach. 
So it, it's a pretty special place. So my first job was out in uh, California in Monterey. I was coaching at the Robert Louis Stevenson School and teaching uh, marine science and marine biology. And we'd go down to Santa Barbara for our first couple games. We played Kate and Thatcher, and uh, it was uh, it was spectacular. It was spectacular. It really is the day the day if they ever get Division One lacrosse, we could just hang it up, right? I mean, everybody else is done. <laughs> exactly exactly yeah. Thatcher we we used to when we'd go out there we'd practice at Thatcher and that was we practiced oh. eight one time too but but um Thatcher was a really cool place up in Ojai and part of the curriculum there is every kid has a horse that's 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 right there, right yeah and a beautiful spot to practice we would go up there and practice one or two days and yeah awesome awesome place sure, yeah and uh we were we recruited uh, a young man at Brown out of there and uh, it was fun talking about his horse experience. Uh, and uh, he was a heck of a defenseman for us. But, um, yeah, just gorgeous view up the Ohio Valley. No uh, doubt. No and, doubt. Um, yeah, and obviously you start getting into some wine country and therefore you get better foods. And the yep. foodies, you and I are really digging it. And yes. California is very friendly to those vegetarians. So I love being out there. No question. Uh, so you, I mean, upstate New York guy, right? Grew up south of Syracuse. Um, as about seems like half of the lacrosse coaches in the world did. Right. <laughs> uh, what, took you, what took you initially out to California? How'd you land out there? Yeah, that was, uh, you know, college, high, senior. We're all looking for jobs as seniors in college. And did a, uh, you know, sort of send the resume out a lot. Uh, used a headhunter service for private schools. Didn't want to get my credential for teaching yet for education. And uh, private schools can hire anybody they want. And I uh, got a lot of no's, but then there was a school in Pebble Beach. Um, and I, I have to admit, I, I had no idea what that meant in terms of the golf world. I wasn't a golfer, right. but I, I knew beach, yeah. you know, and it had to be, you know, on the Pacific ocean. And, and fortunately it, it worked out well. And, uh, uh, actually flew out there right after we beat the number two team in the country, Loyola that year. Um, you know, so I didn't get to celebrate that one, went out and interviewed, uh, and got to celebrate obviously a couple of days later when I had a, jo- a job offer in hand. But a fantastic opportunity to work with a guy, Jeff Young, who was the head football and lacrosse coach and the athletic director. Um, and uh, just, just a wonderful place. Now, this is the, this is the early years for California lacrosse. The, the sure. league we were in was five teams in the Condor League. Yep. Kate, I Badger, remember. Yep. Dunn, Midland. So every road game for us was an overnight trip. Uh, down, go down to the school bus and stay in motels. Eight games. That's all we played. Eight right. games. And as soon as the season ended, they kicked the baseball team. Be coming out, putting out the bases, and getting us off their field. And you, you knew who priority was back then. Sure. But certainly, things have changed dramatically now. But yeah, uh, no question. It's been amazing to see it grow. It's kind of neat that you were on the front lines of it out there <laughs> when it was getting started. So when you started, when you started doing that, as you're looking for your first teaching job, were you thinking that was going to be your career path? Were you thinking college coaching at that time? No, I was actually thinking uh, veterinary science was what I really wanted to do. And so I come after four years, I come back to Syracuse, uh, a girlfriend and I actually from UCSB. Um, yeah. You know, it might be cruel and unusual punishment to grab somebody who went to UC Santa Barbara and to drag her to Syracuse, New York. She had to uh, love you, man. <laughs> delusional. Absolutely. Delusional. Right. But uh, so we, um, we sort of by accident fell into coaching college across together. She wanted to play at Lemoyne college, but they had just become varsity. Yeah. And uh, kudos to the women's college team at Lemoyne who just won the national championship. Um, but so uh, Denise, she kept bugging him. Hey, you know, can I play? No, no, but maybe I'll help you coach. We're just looking for a head coach. Well, no, that goes on all fall. Finally, it's December and Dick Rockwell, the athletic director, looks to this 23-year-old woman and says, will you be the head coach? And she's like, whoa, okay, let me go home and 
you know, and think about this. She comes home, asks me if I'll be her assistant. I'm 26. Uh, but meanwhile, I'm studying to uh, try to get into vet school at Cornell. And uh, so it's almost a, I was almost doing like a post back year for yeah. veterinary science. And so I'm, I'm in uh, microbiology, physics, biochemistry, uh, organic chemistry, I should say. And, uh, and so we just started helping out with this women's team. And the two of us are having so much fun. Right. And uh, we had some success, but it was more just the fun. And the next year, when uh, a really good friend of mine, Shane Lynch, gets the men's job at LeMoyne, I jump ship, jump in with the men's team. And I kind of started losing sight of the veterinary science at that point. And, uh, and it was going to be a daunting task getting into vet school anyways. But I really just kind of ran with college coaching at that point at age 28. It's amazing how coaching or not, whatever career path people choose, how people figure out where they're going, how they end up where they're going. I think you and I are a little bit kindred spirits that way, aside from our love of great food. Uh, same. I mean, I, I never intended to be a, a lacrosse coach as a career. And, right. you know, here I am 52 years old after a career <laughs> as a lacrosse coach. So it's right. amazing how life, how life turns out. So you're, you're coaching uh, lacrosse, men's and women's at the time, right? Helping her mm-hmm. out and then coaching the men's team. Yeah, I was helping her. I was focused mostly on the women the first year and all the men the second year, but I was helping a little bit with her, but you know, she was a good coach. She knew what she was doing. Yep. And then, so now you've made the decision after a couple of years of that lacrosse coaching is going to be it. And you have a stint then the next few years, kind of, you have a really kind of traditional coaching path, right? Moving up from Lemoyne to uh, Washington okay. Lee to Dartmouth right. to Penn state. And then your first head coaching job, Talk a little bit about that process through the assistant coaching jobs, like how that path kind of laid out for you. Yeah, very different route from you, obviously. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. right. Um, The move to Lexington, Virginia was my sort of two-year boot camp. Um, Jim Stagnita is an amazing coach. He has a great, great aptitude for putting people in the best position to win. Uh, He's also tough, and he was tough on me. And that first year, there were times I wanted to go back to Syracuse. Um, but I was like, all right, suck it up, Lars. But I, uh, I learned so much from that man in those two years down in Lexington. And um, I, I really, really owe much of my, you know, the next steps I was able to take because of Jim Stagnita. I came away from there with like 200 pages, this notebook of just ideas at every phase of the game, clearing, riding, men, men down, et cetera. I was just, he really opened my eyes uh, um, to, uh, to, to, to being analytical about the game, tactical. Um, and player development too. So that was the two-year boot camp. You know, making six thousand dollars a year, mm-hmm. or meeting the Cisco food truck at the cafeteria Monday and Thursday mornings at six thirty to get free meal. That was earning the meals at a dining hall. Right. And, uh, and just what a great experience for me, though. You know, and uh, I hope everyone has that type of you know sort of labor of love where you got to got to grind through it. And that was good for me. Yeah. Um, and then. Um, then the Dartmouth job opened up. Uh, they uh, they hired Brick Soul. Um, I had fortunately bumped into him a lot in the recruiting trail. Um, maybe the key was I was at a random game in Horseheads, New York, where yeah. Brick Soul's actually from, and he was there probably because he was visiting home and just went to the high school lacrosse game. And I think and, Nate Watkins uh, is from Horseheads. Yes, he is. He is. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. I am not. I can't remember who I was watching there, or maybe I just was looking for a random game while I was home up in uh, upstate New York. I grew up in Lafayette and. I just bump into Rick Soul, and he probably was like, why is that guy here? And maybe, right. maybe helped me get that job. Like, okay, this guy is willing to be in horse heads. He's willing to be anywhere. <laughs> right. Watching, 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 watching. 
Yeah. So we had a good two years there. We were, we, it was the first time I followed a Nelson that time, Tim Nelson was the head coach and um, he'd just been let go. Um, and so uh, you know, Rick and I, uh, you know, changing the culture, you know, start attacking the recruiting process, working what we had. We had a couple big wins that first year, uh, uh, Harvard and, and Brown, which was weird as an alum. Yeah, um, sure. And, um, but I really, what I learned from Rick was how to make players better individual across players and how not to be easy on people. He would drive these guys in that hour skill session. Back then you could only have four guys for the formats. Man, those guys finished that dripping wet. Like they were in boot camp. And he, um, I really saw progress from the men there because of their commitment and their heart, but because of Rick's soul. So that's what I, as a personally, as a coach, that's what I learned from Rick was uh, how hard you could push people and how you can make people better lacrosse players individually. You know, as a quick aside, I was having a discussion <clears throat> last week with Pat Myers and we were talking about that change from the four man off season to unlimited, you know, now, yeah. now you can practice with as many guys as you want in the off season. I missed the four man, you know, it's, it's having unlimited allows you to do more, but it right. and allows you to do a lot of different things, but suddenly you're making a lot of choices. And mm -hmm. when, you, when you could only do it with four men, you're emphasizing fundamentals. It's all you can really do, right? So you're, you're pushing fundamentals. They're getting a lot of really, as you're saying, intense multi-rep fundamental work that once you start thinking, oh man, I can use the whole team. I can put in a new ride or I can, I can tweak our clear or something. You start losing some of that. I, I totally agree. And I have to admit, I, I most devilishly grin inside when I talk to other head coaches who talk about, oh, the new rules, we have more than, we can do whatever we want, we have the whole team out there, wow, we're getting so much more done. I'm thinking to myself, perfect, that's great, because that's not the way we're doing it. You know? yep. and constantly reminding ourselves, uh, as a staff I have now with Kip, Sean, and Rocco, just, hey, let's keep thinking small as possible. But I understand, yeah, it's more time efficient for us, you know, and... Uh, we can say well, we're, we're doing more, you know, but when you got four guys, you can grind them and really yep. push them. And, and I think Rick Soul, whether he had 14 guys or four guys, was going to have the same tempo. And he just did a lot less rest with four. But, yeah, I, I, I you know, I'm constantly trying to remind our staff, small group, small group, make them better lacrosse. Even though we're recruiting guys at the University of Virginia and they're, you know, they had all the accolades and they can do all, they can do so many things well, but they can't do everything well. And let's strip this thing down and, and build them up from scratch. Sure. Sure. Well, then you moved on to Penn State, and uh, which is where I got to know you when you were there. Yeah. Uh, so first time at a at a you know big Big Ten school, the yeah. atmosphere there. How was that different for you? That was amazing. You know, going to coming from Dartmouth and having played at Brown, you know, never having experienced such you know unless it's a one off weekend with the buddies, you know, in, in a Winnebago. So it was amazing to be in a community like you experienced, where sort of rally around the university, rally around the athletic department, and certainly rally around the football team. I just loved that. I really enjoyed that. I, a little bit of like, you, you read it, you talk with Tom Brokaw, as he, he, uh, the greatest generation, as he coined that phrase from World War II, the people, who, the men and women of yep. this country, along with other allied powers, defeated uh, the Nazis and the Japanese and the Italians. It was just incredible. Like, everyone had to rally. Well, you get a little bit of that in these football towns, like a state college. Like this town is just booming and bursting Thursday, Friday, and the Saturday. And then during game time, it's really quiet if you walk down Main Street. No question. Yep. It's kind of neat to be a part of something where everyone's sort of all in together. Like you, you got the feeling from, from World War II, the greatest generation of people. Um, 
And so I love that piece of it and the facilities. And all of a sudden there's like, I got $1,500 a year, the Nike catalog, you know, you yeah. got all these things. No question. This is so cool. Yeah. Like, wow. And, and to be a part of a department where the logo means something like the maize and blue, the, the M that you wear, um, and Penn state, you know, uh, uh, you just, you just the look, the certain blue with a Nike swoosh, you know, um, the Nittany line, that's it. You don't have to have all these different color schemes. You don't have to have all these little fancy things. Just, just put the maize and blue there. And it's, it's a sign of such quality and, uh, and success. So I'm, uh, I, I loved it. I, I loved it. I got my first opportunity to be a head coach out of, after my four years there, but I can remember I'd accepted the job from Jim Fiore with Stony Brook. And I hadn't signed anything yet. I called Glenn Thiel, the head coach at Penn State, one more time. Glenn, how many more years do you have left? <laughs> <laughs> I, I know I'm an annoying asking this question, but how many more years? Because I really, I really just want to stay. And he gave me the same three to four years, which he's been giving for 30 years at that right. point. And uh, <laughs> so, um, off you went. <laughs> I, tears in my eyes, yeah. off I left. I left State College. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I love my experience there. <laughs> So talk about the uh, talk about the the change going from assistant coach to head coach because it's it's a it's a bigger change than anybody realizes until they do it. And you have no idea. I had no idea. I can remember actually telling Jim Stagnita, "Well, you know, I I was doing most of the recruiting at State College, Jim. Uh, Glenn did a couple of trips, but I was doing all the phone calls, setting up all the official visits. I was doing all this." Uh, I was doing a lot of the practice planning. I was, you know, I, I said, I told Jim, Jim, I might actually have a little bit more free time on my hand as I become a head coach. Yeah. <laughs> I had no idea. It's the dumbest thing I ever thought. It's the dumbest thing I ever came out of my mouth. Um, because at Penn State, all I had to do was recruit and coach. That's, yeah. I didn't fundraise. I didn't do anything else. Yeah. And, and then all of a sudden I get the Sony Brook job and there was this gate uh, that was a side entrance that was a little closer to the place I was staying that um, closed at midnight. And unfortunately, I knew when that guy closed it too early because invariably, not six nights a week, but three nights a week, maybe, I was in the office till midnight. No question. You know, I yep. missed that gate and I go another mile to the main gate, you know, and there was some guy you had to check in with, but, <laughs> and then it'd be a, this seven uh, 11. I'd be eating dinner again out of the seven 11. I was like, this is pathetic. But so yeah, that to me is capsulized what you just said. Like it was, it's so different. Um, now that it's yours and I wanted to know every system, every process, and maybe I shouldn't have done that. Maybe I should have delegated right away, but I wanted to understand, um, you know, how the, the paperwork process, the compliance paperwork, you know, the, the budgeting. I wanted, I wanted to understand it all before I delegated it. And so that first year was, uh, boy, it was, uh, it was intense. And so it is. Yeah, all of a sudden you're wearing a lot of different hats and you were incredible with the developmental piece of what you were able to raise financially and in terms of the infrastructure for the men's across and women's across at Michigan. And, and, you know, so you got to take that seriously. That's got to be a part of this. And I, I, along with the cultural things, like, okay, why is there a new head coach here? Sometimes you take over as a head coach because things were great and the guy retired. Uh, but oftentimes, it's, there's been a turnover for a different reason. Mm -hmm. And so you got to attack that and put your heart and emotion to that and really think about it. And, and we've done that at Virginia. Um, and then obviously the tactical and the hiring, you know, and now you, people, when you're an assistant, you know, you got great ideas. You got good suggestions. Well, <laughs> now you have to come up with the answer. Yeah, people. No matter what, I can remember thinking, 
wow, I'm going to, I'm going to upset people no matter what I do. Like okay. I can't make everyone, I, I used to be able to try to make most people happy. I can't do that anymore. So it's, 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 uh, but the only way to become a head coach, uh, the only way to practice being a head coach is being a head coach. So I highly recommend it, but yeah, watch out that first year. <laughs> yeah, no question. And, and it, you're right. And I think one of the, one of the biggest pieces of it too is, is managing your managers, right? As an assistant coach, that buffer is always there. All you have to do is coach, right? And you're, you're doing a ton of it as an assistant. It's a blast. Head yes. coach, suddenly all those pieces that you've got to do, but there's also people coming directly at you all the time saying, well, you can do it this way. You can't do it that way. You, you can have this. You can't have that. You know, managing the managers is a big part of any middle level job in any corporation. And it's the same. Right. Right. And I tell you, I'm wearing my Iroquois Nationals t-shirt today. Uh, I was fortunate to be in Israel with them, uh, with a great, great group of men. I was the assistant coach. I loved it. <laughs> I have to it's admit. great, isn't it? I just, <laughs> I, I just worked at one end of the field, um, you know, and the, the, the games would end and the reporters would, would jump on Mark Burnham and uh, be asking him the tough questions. You're trying to be, you know, say the right thing politically, you know, talk about the other team being, you know, none of that. I'm just hanging out with the guys. I'm coaching defense, you know, and, uh, and just enjoying that. You know, somebody's late on the bus. I don't care. I'll tell you a funny aside from, from my career when I was hired officially as the varsity coach here by Dave Brandon, I had been the club coach for 14 years. And as a club coach, I had almost complete autonomy. I could do whatever I wanted as long as I could find the money and the resources for it, but I had to find it myself. He, he asked me when he, when he hired me, he said, what's going to be the hardest part of this job for you? And, and in, his head, in his head, he's thinking, you know, learning to be a D1 coach and recruiting and, and coaching at this level, whatever else. And I said, the hardest part's going to be having a job or having a boss. That's going to be the hardest <laughs> part, having a boss. And I said, you know what, Dave, it's going to be the hardest part for you too. Me, me having a boss. Yeah. <laughs> so we're gonna have to get used to this <laughs> that's a good point that's right? a good point it is different it is different you're right and uh i've had two head jobs at our state universities stony brook and virginia and yeah. i've had one head job where it's a private institution you know in providence rhode island and even then it's different yeah. you know there's a lot more a lot more red tape a lot more bureaucracy and things that you gotta check a lot more boxes no in doubt. A state institution, as opposed to you know a liberal art private school that can essentially follow autonomous ruling. So it's, uh, yeah. Speaking of though, you, you spent you know, a couple of years at Stony Brook and then had an opportunity to go back to your alma mater. Right. Brown and start coaching there. How special was that? To have the opportunity that was incredible. To go back, right. It was incredible. And, and I still miss it today. Uh, there's no question I made the right decision going to Virginia, but, uh, emotionally it was very difficult. Um, I'm up here in Lake Placid right now. You can probably tell from the, uh, yeah. uh the surroundings behind me in a log home here. Uh, just hanging out with Dom Starja, who was an honored by the Lake Placid committee um, as a legend yesterday. And then uh, uh, Dave White, Stefan Russo, the alumni base, which is my base. So selfishly, I think it's fantastic. But it's just to be in the center of that, to be a part of all those guys right. all those, and uh, some fantastic teams and fantastic people. Um, that was I miss, I miss sort of being at the epicenter of Brown lacrosse and Brown lacrosse history. Yeah. Um, and so the opportunity to coach there when it was presented to me, I've been told no by Brown several times. Several times I tried to be an assistant coach with uh, head coaches. I tried to be a head coach back in 2000 when they hired Scott Nelson. And, um, and so when the finally, finally, I think, and honestly, uh, I think it was the only time I've ever been the first choice for a job. You know, I've had a lot of jobs like we're going through there here now. I, I felt like I was always someone's third choice, maybe even lower than that. And, uh, 
the Brown job was the one time I felt like I might have been had the inside track, and, and there was no chance I was saying no. It, it took, I took a pay cut um, yep. to take it, and uh, didn't care. You know, it was uh, it was a fantastic opportunity. Well, they knew they had you in a pretty good negotiating spot. They did, right? They did. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Mike Kohlberger knew. Right. He kept yeah. saying, There's no nothing question. else I can do, Lars. There's nothing else I can do, and I'm like. <laughs> I don't right. believe you, but okay. <laughs> I'm there. So you, you touched on it. I mean, you spent uh, a, a long time, 10 years at Brown, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. And, uh, and then the Virginia opportunity comes up. And so that decision to leave your alma mater, the place, you know, it's really your lacrosse home to go to Virginia. How'd that decision, that had to be hard. It was hard, but I will tell you something. And, 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 and I hate talking too much about myself, but I, it, if there's coaches out there who maybe go through similar examples, yeah, I had had an opportunity to leave Brown in 2010 when the Penn State job opened up, <clears> when <throat> you finally did right. retire. And I had loved my experience in Happy Valley and with the, the people there and that community, a strong sense of community like we talked about in Happy Valley. And uh, I was fortunate enough um, that I was offered the position. Um, and uh, I was uh, – I, I, you know, there were moments I was like, I was going, I was, I was taking it. And I just remember how hard I, how hard it was to say no to Brown at that point in my career. And, um, when I finally put it to bed and emotionally, I was, I, I was a bit of a wreck for a couple of weeks. Ago, yeah, when I, but I finally put it to bed. I irrationally told myself I'm staying at Brown for the rest of my career, unless a job like Virginia or Syracuse opens up. I grew up in Syracuse and, uh, you know, to be, you know, to follow in Dom's shoes. So I just picked those two schools, fantastic programs, obviously, great traditions, great histories. I said, if one of those two jobs comes up, I take it and I don't look back. Um, and so, <laughs> you know, irrationally, I say that. And then six years later, that opportunity arises. And right. so I go into that just to tell you. So when I get the offer in 2016, I've said, Lars, in a different state of mind, when you were trying to be a bit more rational, you said you were going and I just, I just went and I, and I didn't look back. And uh, so that part in a sense, because of the Penn State experience made it easier. So you, you, you're following Dom Starja at Virginia, who is, you know, obviously had a storied lacrosse coaching career. Uh, and not only are you following a guy like that at Virginia, but he was your coach at Brown. Right. Right. So, you know, kind of a, kind of a weird situation. Right. And yeah. how do you, how do you handle that? What do you, how, how does, how does that mechanism work? It's, it's fantastic because first of all, he's a tremendous person. And despite being let go by University of Virginia, um, I was staying in his house when I first moved down to Charlottesville. I mean, yeah, he could have been better, right? yep. turned his back on it. No, Lars, come on. Let me, what can I do for you? We talked almost every day that first month. And uh, he's been a fantastic steward of the University of Virginia, despite having me let go by them. Um, my objective is to try to get Dom back in the fold. And, uh, and I'm hopeful that that will happen soon. When he and his family are ready, I would love to have them, similar to what Syracuse does uh, with uh, the older Simmons. He's around. You see him up in the press box. He's on the field once a while. Just to have Dom around as the godfather of Virginia lacrosse. I mean, tremendous success. Um, four national championships. And that's, that's the second way to answer your question is it keeps me humble. There's sure. no question that our egos is when you become a head coach, start getting a little bigger, a little yeah. big. Well, when you're following Dom, okay. Oh, his, I, I was a Brown head coach for 10 years. Oh, he was a Brown head coach for 10 years. Oh, his record was better than mine. Okay. Right. Sure. Um, 
<laughs> I'm now the Virginia coach. Oh, yeah, that's great. Everyone thinks you're great. Oh, Don won four national titles. And they sit above my desk, by the way. I look at them every day. No pressure. Um, and so – and. To see Dom getting the honor here, you know, with a national hall uh, up here in Lake Placid, to know that he's a national hall of famer uh, for the sport of lacrosse, he's done so much and, and continues to and continues to do, and he does more for others. It's like, and now the service piece, he's always had that. We've always did that when we were Brown, but now he's doing even more so because he has more time, um, especially with Harlem lacrosse. He's helped out yep. with inner city lacrosse programs. They've got, he mentioned uh, up here in Lake Placid, the legends, the team that he's been a part of for many, many years up here. They're going to try to give back. So um, he's always, he's been so others focused more than just about any other person I know. And so yeah. uh, I'm really, really lucky to, um, to follow him and I'll never, I'll never fit in his shoes. And, uh, but I'll well, just a, appreciate learning from him. It's such a great way to put it. And I think it, it, it just speaks volumes about him to go through a difficult situation as he did at the end of an amazing career and then to embrace you and still care so deeply about the program and you, right? Because ultimately it's about the people and, right. you know, Dom gets that and always has and, and always, always will. Has. Yep. Always has. I, I think he yelled at me once in my four years at Brown as a player. You know, yeah. I, I, and I, I wish I'd picked up more on that because I, I, I tend to be a bit more of a yeller. Um, but uh, I remember the one time, you know, and it wasn't even that bad. It was like three seconds. And I was like, oh, my God, Dom yelled at me. Oh. Right. That must have been important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I must, have really, I must have really screwed up that one. <laughs> so you come, from, uh, you come from Brown to Virginia, and you were able to bring your staff along with you. Right, Sean and, and Kip came along with you, and um, I'm assuming I'd like to hear a little bit about this because putting together a staff is such an important part of being a head coach. But um, I'm assuming they both bring some pretty unique things to the table at Virginia. Kip, as a as a former great Virginia player himself, and Sean as as kind of the architect of of the offensive system and the and the pace that you guys started playing at Brown and are now continuing to to play at Virginia. Sure. You know, since I was just listening to a podcast recently, uh, Malcolm Gladwell, uh, yeah. one of my favorite writers and, and you know, since philosophers, if, he, if that's a, an appropriate title, but they were talking about um, hiring and the benefit of teams. When you get a team that really works well together for a corporation or a company and, and the interactions, yet the hiring process, you hire away one of the individuals because, mm -hmm. you know, and, and then you try to form the team again somewhere else and, and recreate the team there when you lose one, try to recreate the team. And it, it, the question was, well, why don't you just, why wouldn't company B try to hire the whole team? And it just hasn't worked well that way. Right. <laughs> so it's like, if you have that team, can you take it to company B? I'm listening to podcasts going, well, we kind of did that, didn't we? You know, we, we were at Brown, Kerwin, Turner, myself, all went to Virginia, you yeah. know, and we were able to keep that core. And Boy, that didn't. That really was a tremendous benefit for us to be able to take this step, hitting the ground running, literally understanding each other, so we could focus on changing the culture as opposed to the slide schemes and the nomenclature and what we're running offensively and how we recruit and what's the style, where we're going to be. We have a fantastic team, and I really, really feel fortunate to have them. Um, how long can we hold it together? That's the challenge, right? Yeah. This summer. You With know, success uh, comes opportunities, right? I know. A, a great yeah. Division One opportunity came Sean Kerwin's way this summer. Sure. And uh, fortunately, he said no. But, yeah. you know, he's not going to always say no. Yeah. And Turner's going to have his opportunities. Um, now, Kip is an alum, so he may not jump as quickly because, you know, he loves living in Charlottesville. Not good, buddy. Not good. <laughs> you got plenty around you. 
I know, I know. So it's, it's unbelievable. You know, they kept put up with me for eight years and Sean now four years and uh, having that continuity of the team has really been tremendous for us. Uh, Rocco Romero joined us as well. I've had him for two years here in Virginia. Mm-hmm. Uh, what an incredible person he is. Um, people have tried to make a run at him. People are trying to make a run at him actually today. Uh, mm-hmm. I hope we don't lose him today. Um, but you're right. It's on, you know, a good program. You, coaches take off, but yeah, that, that continuity is so important. And as a coach, as you, as you guys are out there hiring and you're looking for people, um, obviously there's certain times there's needs. There's, you want to fill in your weaknesses. Um, you know, if you're offensive mind and you need defense or whatever, but it's really about the relationship. You got to make sure you got to make sure that this is someone that matches up well with who you are and your persona. I don't want them to think like you. I'm not saying that, but you got to be comfortable because you're going to spend so much time together and you got to be, get to the point where you can disagree with each other respectfully. And, and as a head coach, you got to be able to willing to accept that you have to, and it's hard. Again, I got an idea. I thought about this. This is a great idea. And your sisters are like, <laughs> you gotta be willing to listen to them because no doubt. they got more, there's more of them than you. And yeah. And, uh, and, and then obviously sometimes you put your foot down and say, we're doing it. Sorry, fellas. <laughs> and the reality too, as we touched on earlier is because as a head coach, you're pulled in so many different directions. They might often have a better pulse of the team read than, than you do. Right. And so they've watched more film. Sometimes. They've watched more film. Oftentimes they've, they've watched, watched more film and, and oftentimes they, they might, just say, you know, the team's not ready for this, or the team is, is not right. feeling what you want to do on Wednesday. They need this, right? <laughs> right, right. And, uh, and so it's, I just, I, I know sometimes I can be stubborn, and, uh, but I, I try to keep my open mind. And it's easier to do that when you respect the people you work with and you have great people and you have the continuity of the teamwork, as, as I was talking about at the beginning yep. of this. You talked about them watching more film. It, it reminds me of a story when we first started here and we were kind of figuring out how we were going to do some of our video systems and breakdown, film breakdown. And, and we spent a lot of time with the basketball staff and, and picking their brains. Oh, wow. Them, great. Right. Yeah. Which is one of the great things about being at a big university. Sure. You're around other world-class coaches and, and you yeah. can learn so much, not just from the coaches, their staff as well. And I remember talking to their uh, video coordinator at the time and he broke it down like this for us. He said, uh, as a video coordinator, I scout and break down film of every opponent we're about to play. And I know 95% of what they know because I'm watching every game they ever play. So I know everything their coaches know about what they do. Yeah. I cut stuff up and give to the assistant coaches enough. So they know about 50% of what the other, of what the other team knows about themselves. Then they're going to feed to the head coach about 25%, what he needs to know to formulate the the overall strategy. And then the challenge then is filtering all that down to the three, four, 5% that the players need to know to actually execute. Interesting. Yeah. That's how he broke it all down. Yes. It was a really interesting way to think about it, but probably pretty true. Yeah. No, it is true. And I, I appreciate that because sometimes as a coach, I can be watching a play happening and I'm like, I know exactly what they're going to do, but I decided not to spend the extra 20 minutes detailing every play that this opposing team runs for our men because too much, you know, the analysis paralysis by analysis, you know, it can't be about them too much. And so, right. So that filtering down process that you're talking about, each coach is making decisions on, okay, what's important for our men to know, you know, and 
you know, trimming the fat, trimming the fat until it gets to the head coach who's who say, okay, this is, these are the two or three things we really got to know about this opponent. But I could see that video coordinator watching the game, you know, that against an opponent and watching a play and it scores. I'm like, I, I knew they were running that play. I yeah, knew that. I've seen it 150 times in the last week. So yeah, absolutely. I knew that. I knew exactly what that guy was going to do when he dribbled left, you know? Yeah. Um, I do think you've coached both sports, but I think, uh, I think sometimes lacrosse coaches, especially at the highest level, think they're football coaches, <laughs> right? Coach our sport like football, right? right. And sports, not football. We're a, no. we're a flow sport. We don't get to stop every four seconds and reset and do something new. Yeah. Right. And so we don't have our diagrams about you go here, you go here, you go here often don't work out that way. So <laughs> Right. And, and, I, and I've seen that, you know, and, and, I, and I liked football and I enjoyed that, that, that chess match, that mental yeah. battle between the uh, opposing coordinator. And, uh, um, but yeah, it usually doesn't work out well when you're trying to get into a chess match with your own pieces because they're not X's and O's on a grease board. Um, they're human beings. And again, if you continue to talk about building the culture and creating a mindset amongst your men, and this is our style of play, can't keep altering that you can't keep changing no. what your offensive system is or you know for each opponent and I've, I've, I've made that mistake and I know that from personal experience I'm trying to do too much yeah going back to the the you know Vince Lombardi days going back to football right yeah you, know, you only you only need like seven plays you just run them really 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 well right exactly That's- and that's right. it. You have a couple counters to your, your main play to keep yeah. the linebackers at home and keep them having to guess a little bit, but right, just run them really, really well. I know. Yeah. Uh, so when I was talking to Pat Myers last week, I asked him and I'll ask you the same thing at the end of this. If you could, if you were doing what I'm doing, give me a question that you would ask, you'd want to hear from other coaches. And, uh, and he said he'd love to be a fly on the wall with coaches first team meeting of the year, which is a pretty interesting answer to it you know what how do they what do they pare down and say in that meeting how do they deliver it are they focused on logistics are they focused on uh certain aspects of 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 their schedule coming up are they focused on culture how do they deliver that first team meeting and i'd be pretty interested to know how you focused on the first team meeting you had two years ago at virginia when you're coming in uh, taking over that program and obviously intent on changing culture. And you're like, here, here I am, here we are, let's go. What, what's that first meeting yeah. like? You know, I, I, some of the, one of the, one of the major principles I remember is not talking too much right? because I had so much to say. That's it. So many things we had typed up, um, you know, what, what we believe in, you know, what our mission was. And I wanted to read through the whole thing and I wanted to keep talking and have all these rules and this and I, and, and I was like, I just remember thinking, okay, let's keep this thing to about 20, 25 minutes, Lars, because, uh, you know, I, 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 these guys are ready to run through a wall. And I can't give them my best speech from day, on day one. Right. <laughs> you know, and I don't even know if we're practicing that day, you know, but it's like. You didn't need to, right? They're ready on their own. So. Right, they're ready, right. Yeah. And so um, it, was, it was just really, I, I, honestly, to tell you, my first year was more analysis than being an agent of change. And I learned that from Dom. I remember Dom said in 1993, that first year, he did a lot of observing. And it makes sense because University of Virginia, like University of Michigan, these are fantastic athletic departments. They know exactly what they're doing. They have two sports psychologists because one's not enough. There's a sports nutrition department. We didn't have that at Brown. There's all sorts of administrative support. And there's so much built in to be successful. And they've thought a lot about those. 
why would I come in like a bull in a china shop say, no, I need this, I need that. So I'm, I'm just going to analyze. So we talked about some things. We obviously changed the style of play that first year. But that first year was pretty – it wasn't as significant an answer as you may have expected. The year two, that's when the message was different. Because now I had really recognized what was, what was needed to be changed and what, uh, what we really had to attack. And culturally, we spent so much time year two. So that first meeting, year two, the team meeting, we really sort of laid it out. It felt this is, this is what's really going to change. And this is how we're going to become others focused. And we're going to really build a unit. We talked about it last year. It didn't happen. We got to start from square one and really do this right. Sometimes by, uh, by going through that first year too, you now have rock solid examples of what True. didn't go right, right? Of what did and didn't go right. Look, exactly. it. we all saw it together. We lived it together. Here's the things that you, you, we all know we got to improve because we saw it, right? We saw it. We saw it in our last two games. And I, I don't want to take credit away from Duke and Penn, but we got blown out in our last two games. We lost 20 to 11 to Duke and then 17 to 11 to Mike Murphy's Penn team. Yeah. And, um, once, once we recognized we were no longer going to be in the ACC tournament and thus we weren't making the NCAA tournament, a switch turned off in some of the men. And I, I didn't see it coming. Maybe because, unfortunately, we had a couple bad years at Brown and we played some, played some games against Dartmouth at the end of the year that didn't mean anything, but we wanted to beat Dartmouth and finish on a high note. That didn't mean enough to the team of 2017 of Virginia. That didn't, that didn't resonate for them. They came to Virginia to win ACC and NCAA titles. When those were no longer at stake, they're done. It was almost a selfishness. Like, well, I'm not playing for. I'm not really playing for the rest of you guys. I would play. I came here to win an ACC title and win an NCAA title. And so that the concrete example was like an aha moment of wow. We just rolled over and laid eggs those last two games and just didn't give ourselves a fighting chance. And so I totally agree. You have to have those examples. And now we that was what we attacked here too. We got to start fighting for each other. We got to bond to battle. We got to really come together. And so we did a ton. I'd love to talk about probably another podcast, but we did a ton year two. Um, and the men bought into it and the men believed in each other and they're really co- becoming a more cohesive unit. It's really fun to see. So you've, you've coached some incredibly talented players, um, probably everywhere you've been, but you, you had an unbelievable roster in your last couple of years at Brown. Uh, that was a pretty magical group. And yeah. And obviously at Virginia, you're always going to have access to those kinds of guys through the recruiting that you can do there. What's, and I, I kind of, we've already, uh, I know what you're going to say here. What's more important, talent or culture? Yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely the culture, you know, and yeah. in the ACC, it's, you really do need both on, you know, you can't, you can't shave one off the other, but uh, it's, um, it's, you look around the college across world. Uh, you see the two teams in the national championship game this year. Um, despite that being Yale's first Final Four, they've been consistently good for about a decade now. Um, and Duke obviously has been right there. And you can look inside those those programs. You know, the rest of us get little sneak peeks. You know, and it just seems to be a really tight knit, cohesive culture that they understand each other. Um, that upperclassmen are taking care of small issues. So mm-hmm. The coaches staff doesn't have to get involved and. There's uh, there's some couple of great role models in those two championship teams, and and that's where you know you have to have both if you want to be a, a true champion. So this year, this past season, uh, you guys were able to get a big monkey off the Virginia program. Back, yeah, <laughs> right. I think it was 18 straight losses before you guys beat North Carolina. The what was that locker room like 
after that <laughs> win. <laughs> we have a process of post game of what we do. Yeah. And uh, we have a, we have, we have a, and, um, I give the men credit. It was a little hard to stay with the process after that one because they all just wanted to, you know, really celebrate and hug and and uh, and jump around. But we, we after about two minutes, we 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 got it. We got down. And, and, and I don't want to quiet that either, right? You know, right. Uh, you want to get up there. You want to shout as loud as you can and hug as hard as you can. And um, and I, honestly, I don't think I understood how much they carried on their shoulders. Yeah, I always feel like that type of pressure is on the 50-year-old guy, not the 20-year-old, who's, you know, come and play lacrosse, enjoy the game, play the tempo we want up and down. But they showed more of a relief than I did. And I heard one of the players talking to a reporter, talking about, like, oh, what a sense of relief. I'm like, a 20-year-old is having a sense of relief from winning right. a lacrosse yeah. game? Yeah, yeah. Dang, I, I, maybe I didn't shoulder enough of the, more of the pressure on me, but I could tell there was a sense of relief and excitement. But after about two minutes, all right, get back to our system and process. And what we do is we spend about the next five to eight minutes having um, an open floor. Okay, what did we do well and what didn't we do well? What do we got to be better at? And not the time to call out, you know, hey, you know, John Paul, you got to do a better job in the riding yeah. game. Not, not trying to make it individualistic, but, you know, to really be sort of analytical and critical right away of what we did well and what we didn't well, win or lose. And uh, it's a good sort of, I don't know. It helps me vet. It helps them vet a little bit. Um, I try not to talk too much. I just do the summary. But so we got back to the system, and then we, then we, you know, enjoyed a really good bus ride home. Yeah. Well, good for you. I think you know there are a lot of things that give you satisfaction as a coach, and many of those come off the field as much as they do on the field. But those, we all, if you've coached long enough, have memories of those really, really special post game feelings yeah. after unbelievably huge wins, and I'm sure for you that was one of them. It had to be. Right. Um, yeah. No, we'll, we'll, we won't forget that one. And you know, we were yeah. all wet and cold and yeah. so. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the challenges that you faced this year as a team was losing Ryan Conrad early. Right. Mm -hmm. And I know because I talked to you about it uh, during the season a little bit. He's a really, really talented lacrosse player, great athlete, but he meant a lot more to your team than that. Right. What What is right. losing a guy like him do? Uh, and what are the challenges when you lose a guy like that on the team? Sure. Well, fortunately, we have a great mentor of the program, um, George Morris, who put these words in my mouth, and I share them with Ryan and others. You know, Ryan, you're no longer eligible to play, but you're super eligible to lead now because you can really focus on it. He was a captain. And so um, once the surgery is done, he was able to come to practice consistently, and it took a couple weeks for that to get by him. I give him a lot of credit you know, because he's a fierce competitor, and it's hard to be on the sidelines telling others or hoping or wishing others are going to get the job done. Um, but he did a fantastic job as a captain um, after that. As a team, it took us about a month. You know, March 4 is when he was injured in the Syracuse game. It really wasn't until April um, where we really re realized how to play without Ryan because he did so much for us. He yeah. was on just about every face-off wing. He was our man-down guy. He's obviously a D-midi transition guy who would stay in play some offense if we liked the matchups. I mean, we, you know, all of a sudden we're like, oh, God, Ryan's not playing. We, we got to work on our clear again. We can't just yeah. give the ball to Ryan. And, and we're not just filling one spot. We got to find like four guys to fill it up. It really was. It took three or four guys to replace him. And, yeah. uh, and men like David Smith, Corey Harris, John Fox, others, they stepped up and filled that role. But um, it took a while to figure out, okay, you do this part of Ryan's job. You do this part of Ryan's job. So, um, 
Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, he does not get that year back. It was past the 30%. Yep. So uh, he has one more year of college across. And uh, he's, uh, he's starting to run. It looks like he's going to be 100%. So I'm sure he'll attack it. Yeah. And, well, he does everything. Yeah. Um, along with him and many of the other guys you've coached, you've coached some really elite level players. What in your mind separates the truly elite guys from everybody else? Because we, you know, we all recruit all these great guys to Division One lacrosse, and and so many of them have so much potential to be incredible college players. But but only a few really take full advantage of that. What's the difference? Yeah, what is that? Because everyone's different. Everyone brings their own experiences that are different and unique. I, I will say, you know, thinking about Ryan Conrad thinking about Dylan Malloy, um, they just seem to have so much fun. And they don't seem to want to take drills off, reps off. They just want to kick right back in there. Um, so there's a work ethic, but there's also a joy, a spirit. Um, but, I, but, I, but there's more than that because, you know, I think of like Doc Aiken. You know, Doc Aiken, he's out there in a T-shirt in a freezing cold January day when I walked by the practice field one time. And, and uh, he's shooting with his offhand over and over and right. over again. And, you know, so he's committed just to be the hardest worker possible. And, um, but I, what I really do think it's, it's an open mind. When I think about the, when I, on the fly here, thinking just an open mind to new ideas and not that they're going to change the way they shoot, but to practice it, to try it, but more so open mind with teammates and other ideas from their teammates. Um, it just, when we have our cultural Tuesdays and Doc Aiken is sitting in the front of the room, really listening and really participating in what we're doing. I mean, that's, that's got to cause buy-in from everyone. Mm -hmm. And really understanding that if he gives of himself, the rest of us uh, are going to really appreciate that and understand that he's trying to get better. Yep. He's just always trying to get better. Yep. That's a great answer. And I think sometimes it's, it's overlooked how important that is not only to an individual in any profession, whether you're an athlete or a coach or, or a business administrator, whatever that is, to have an open mind and take criticism and, and welcome it and, and seek it. Um, right. But what, a, what an impact having that kind of attitude can have on everybody else as a leader, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So when, when, you, when, your best players, when your best players are not your hardest workers, yeah. <laughs> that can you know, that cultural can, challenge. That can crush that. culture, no question. It's really difficult to what you were, most of those head coaches are trying to create. Yeah. Um, and then when you have Thomas Muldoon, who is your best player and is your hardest worker, you know, like we had in our early years at Brown, it's fantastic. Yeah. Um, so switching gears a little bit, you're wearing your Iroquois Nationals yeah. shirt today. Just got back from the World Games. Yes. It looked like an unbelievable experience over there. And it, it looked like it looked like you guys were having a lot of fun on that team. Talk to me a little bit about that experience. Yeah, well, first of all, there's there's no war where we were in Tel Aviv and north of Tel Aviv and Netanya, uh, and most of the country. There's no war, you know. Yeah. Uh, yes, there's uh, there's things flying. There's incendiary devices flying over the border occasionally, um, but um, it's a it's it's a safe nation, uh, and uh, they do a fantastic job of making us feel safe. Uh, now, especially where we were in Netanya, it was a bit of a bubble. We were uh, like in the South Beach. We were like the Miami of right. Israel. And so we were on the Mediterranean Sea, the consistent sea breeze, you know, day and night, uh, beautiful weather. Fantastic. I highly recommend anybody who's thinking about visiting to do it. Well, you uh, were there, so you weren't watching the games on TV, but we saw the same commercial 
for Natasha. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't see that commercial. Over and over and over and over <laughs> again. So where, where anybody who is watching it is is either booking right now to get over there or or never wants to go because they're so sick of that commercial. Exactly. <laughs> they made it. It looked beautiful. Yeah. It it's really is. I mean, think about going to the Mediterranean. You might think of Italy or Cyprus or Greece, but you know, Israel is a fantastic option, especially with the historical fact of yeah. Bethlehem and Jerusalem sure. and the significance of those with the three major religions and uh, the founding of, of those religions there. I mean, the fact that Jerusalem has changed hands 42 times, 42 times, you know, and it's six or 7,000 years um, to experience the history of that. And, yeah. uh, and obviously the, the religious experience and, and sort of a trip to, in a sense, to the, to the Mecca for, for many different religions to go there. I, it's a fantastic place and I, I highly recommend it. Um, and I'm glad we were able to enjoy a little bit of it because when you coach in world lacrosse, you're playing eight games in nine or 10 days. It's, yeah. it's amazing. I, I'm, uh, I was amazed at the Iroquois men. There were some times I told the guys, I said, fellas, I know we're tired, but I think that other team's exhausted. And some of the guys in the huddle, I remember one time, coach, we're not tired. <laughs> and I'm like, wow. They really, the Native Americans that, that we were able to coach uh, came in with such a great attitude and great approach and uh, really put the social life on the, on the side um, and committed to it. And they were in fantastic, fantastic shape. Uh, our, our weaknesses are certainly because we don't have a lot of guys who play with a six foot stick year mm -hmm. round. Um, and, uh, the specialty areas, we actually did pretty well. Warren Hill did a nice job in goal. He did. And, and Jeremy Thompson is a fantastic faceoff guy. We got to get some more depth there. We need more native Americans playing goalie. I remember Travis Solomon saying this before he passed away and, um, and we need more faceoff men. Um, and we certainly need more guys who pick up a long stick year round. Uh, I understand why they don't. Um, there's no better youth development program in the world to developing offensive players than the Native American reservations and the boxer cross. And so your ticket to uh, playing high level, to playing the next level, maybe a college education, playing professionally for money is boxer cross. So I understand why the short stick is the meal ticket as opposed to the long stick, but we got to get more guys doing it. Um, it was well, look, uh, at, look at how much, you know, the Canadian national team has, has improved. Right. Uh, defensively just just from the last world championships to this one because more guys are picking up long sticks and playing field right you can see the payoff of that no you're right and so we're probably where canada is 15 years ago right and then in 2006 when they beat um the u.s in london ontario you saw a different level of defensive skill sets with the stick work and uh i saw some nifty of things that i've stolen borrowed and we drill it virginia now and um i just it's you know and they have some very good coaching too um, you know, Taylor Ray's doing a really nice job with that mm -hmm. defense. So they've come a long way defensively. And so we need to use them as a role model. Um, you know, we just got to glorify that position. Like, you know, the concept that you know, they had someone who could neutralize Rob Pinnell, uh, you know, as we did, you know, right. we, we, just, we were just hoping Rob Pinnell was going to, you know, take the day off, but he didn't. Yeah, and, he, doesn't, uh, he doesn't do that a lot, does he? He doesn't do that very often. And uh, you saw that in the second half, you know, right. and all of a sudden we came out with a two-goal lead and it disappeared quickly because he started going to the goal and then he's creating offense. And it was like, oh, boy. But, yeah, so – but a fantastic – and as a coach, um, I mean, coaching eight games in nine days. <laughs> um, and uh, But, again, I, as I said earlier, I really enjoyed the fact that I get to be an assistant coach and just really focus on one end, talk about man-down defense, talk about 6v6 defense. Uh, I really enjoyed that. 
Yeah, how special to be part of that team too in our sport, right? And have yeah. that the the cultural heart and soul of lacrosse and and to to be part of that. You also have my boy KJ on the team. And I, I told people, you know, with all the big names on that team, I told people before the games, like, look out, if this guy gets some time on the field, he'll do some things. By the end of the tournament, he was. He um yeah, KJ has some Chippewa blood in him. Yeah. And um he was he was sort of with the pack the first three or four games. Yeah. And I look back now and I understand why. Well, when you have Lyle Thompson, no question. Miles Thompson, Ty Thompson, Randy Stotts, you know, the younger Austin Stotts, you're probably like, okay, let me, I'm, I'm, I'm going to ease my way into this. Let me see what, what they want to do with the ball first. And uh, I'll, I'll uh, pick my spots uh, carefully. And then the last three or four games, KJ just erupted. And I, yeah. he found his niche. He recognized that he was somebody that we wanted to lean on, that we didn't have to have the ball in Lyle stick every time. And we needed more out of him. And he produced. And he really became maybe our best player those last three or four games. Uh, he was a f- fantastic. Yeah, he's, he's probably going to be the best player I ever coached. He's, he's, uh, yeah. he's pretty special talent. No question. Yeah, and he seems to be getting better. He's you know he's playing a lot of box, and he's really uh, a good student of the game. He understands the game well. So yeah, it's yeah. fun. We're really lucky to have him. Yeah, no uh, doubt. That's fun. I know he had a blast. Talked to him afterwards, and, and I know great. He had a great time being with you guys. But you write you write about the, the the rituals traditions we do pregame um, that can't be all, can't be videoed or photographed. We yeah. you know we always try to find a nice little quiet spot. Right. You know, for me to be a part of that is, is so special and unique that I get to be allowed to be a part of it. And and then the singing and chanting. Uh, you got a little uh, taste of Scott Mars life. For yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but Johnson Jimerson, he would he would talk to the team in Oneida and then you know and then summarize in English for a couple of us who needed it and uh, you know every pregame and on the bus sometimes some singing and chanting um, to be a part of it um, blew me away and it, what's also cool is that every other nation there recognizes the importance sure. of the Iroquois when we showed up you know <clears throat> uh, we were like the rock stars you know and and there were two teams that are better than us because they won the gold and silver but. I don't know. I felt like we got a little more rock star status, you know, in terms of like, wow, here come, here comes the Thompsons, here comes the Iroquois. And it was, uh, it was really, really cool to be it. Yeah. Which is such a new, unique thing about our sport. And it's one of the, one of the fears I have as we head towards potential of Olympic conclusion is, yes. is you know, how the Iroquois are going to be part of this if they ever can be. And if not, which would be really disappointing, how the Olympics will somehow acknowledge and embrace their part in the game because I don't know of another sport in the world that has this kind of relationship with the culture, this kind of deep cultural, you know, spiritual relationship. I don't it's think it exists. No, I don't, I don't know if it does exist. Uh, and I'd love to know if it does. I'd love to read about that. I, I have the same concern. And I did bring that up at one point during the, the week, you know, uh, it's like, okay, everyone's talking about Olympics. Um, what happens to the Iroquois? Right. And, the answer was, well, let's take this one step at a time. I'm like, okay, I don't like that answer. But, um, but since then, I have talked to some other people saying, well, you know, the Olympics did some unique things with Russia this year. What was the name Puerto of that one? Puerto Rico, you know, Puerto Rico. Yeah, yeah. You know, the athletes from Russia, you know, or whatever that name of that. Yeah. You know, so they can be creative. So hopefully they can continue to be creative. Uh, and obviously, Orrin Lyons, um, the elders of, uh, of all the Native American tribes, uh, if they can, you know, continue to make a push here um, to get that sovereign status. And obviously we're just starting to do it in the Northeast of, in Canada and the U.S. with the Iroquois. We're creating that, the Haudenosaunee passport and having that true sovereign status. 
that can be recognized on a more international level. So they're going to make their push. And, uh, and I think that was a big part of what, what, what why we travel with a Haudenosaunee passport and yeah. why, sure, it could be easier to go with an American or Canadian passport to get to Israel and come back. But this is important to this, these people. And I, and I get it now. And sure, it took us two extra days. The Israelis were ready to take us, but the Israelis wanted to know that the Canadians would take us back. Sure. <laughs> I mean, that, that's was the, the two-day hiccup, but it worked and, and we did it. And so we're going to keep taking positive steps. Yeah, it's great. It did. Um, again, switching gears really quickly, a couple more things to hit before we go. You're on the rules committee and yes. there's there's been a little chatter about you know what's coming up and and what's going on. I think the, the obvious one is the shot clock. And I don't necessarily need to go into that with you because it's being talked to death out there. Um, I'm for it, by the way, uh, if we can find <laughs> the right format and always have been not for necessarily the same reasons that I think a lot of people are. I, I like yeah. it for potential growth of the game and, and, and from a fan perspective and, and, you know, and the one that everybody talks about, I'd like to get less on the plate of the officials. I think they worked hard enough, right. but those are my reasons, not so much about pace of play. Are there any other rules that uh, are going to be hot button topics at these meetings coming up that you know of? Yeah, what are the big ones? Uh, obviously, shot clock is going to dominate the conversation. And now this is my first rules committee meeting, so let me preface this. I, I have no historical knowledge here. Um, we're going to be in Indianapolis for three days yep. and uh, um, probably come out pasty ghost white because we're not going to see the light of day because we're going to have a lot of discussion about shot clock and a couple others but some of those others uh you know it'd be interesting to see uh the size of the substitution box that's been talked a lot about when the box went from 10 yards to 20 yards that uh transition was being cut down as teams were able to cut off breaks with a quick sub of a long stick midi in the game um but i think we'll talk about that um We'll talk about face-offs. I, I don't think there's ever an opportunity for the rules committee or anybody to talk about rules and not talk about face-offs. So I predict we'll talk about face-offs for hours and nothing will change, but, uh, but we'll talk about it. <laughs> and um, I actually feel like we're pretty close there now. You know, yeah, I think some like of the tweaks that were made did the things that they yeah. were supposed to do. And I, I don't know without making other drastic changes that we could get much better than we are right now at the face-off other than discussing about whether the face-off is – what's needed or not. I don't. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I guess my, my thoughts are we've created so much protection and safety for the face-off men that now it's really hard to counter that most of the counters to against someone who's really good at motorcycle grip clamp. They're almost untouchable now. And so that's my concern is that's why you're seeing a couple people in the 75 to 80% range where historically they weren't that close because you could do some more jamming to the chest or chopping of arms. And I, and, and I'm all about safety, but it's like, yeesh. well, so, I don't have to tell you back in our day, you just on the wings, half your job was just going in and blowing those guys up. I mean, that was yeah. right. I mean, those, that's the old school way. I know. Yeah. So we don't, we don't want that. No, I, I mean, even, even now, I mean, you have seen guys like Trevor Baptiste who is arguably, the best in the world right now at what he does uh even he has started to to have to change his grip sometimes he stands up and, and uses a traditional grip sometimes mm -hmm. i do think in everything you do no matter what the rules are people are going to figure out ways to attack them right and right you know you get a guy who's really dominant facing off everybody's working on ways to attack that guy and, and figure out within the rules mostly within the rules how to you know how to get around that and, and right so right even even he has has had to start 
changing his craft a little bit and adding some things to it. Sure. Yeah. Things, things are, uh, things are changing with that face off. We'll see. We'll probably, we'll talk about things. I, I don't foresee a change, but we'll see how the, yeah. how the conversation will be interesting meetings. I'll be, uh, I want to hear about it after you're done. Cause that might similar to what you said. I share the same thing. No matter what we do, whatever change we make, is this making the officials life easier? Yes. Or if we're yes. making it harder, I don't want to do it. Nope. I just, even if it makes the game better, I just, we ask a lot of those three officials. Um, and we and, put them, we put them in a position that we feel like we have to challenge them more. And I don't, I would prefer not to ever have to challenge them. <laughs> I would just yeah. like to coach the game. I know. I know. I, I would like to get to that point. And, uh, you know, the shot clock asking for the shot clock to be put on. is just, is another point of emphasis. So one coach is yelling at them one way, the other coach is arguing the other, just the other side of it. And it's just not fun. Yeah. So whatever we do. So we have this, there's a few things, but yeah, shot clock is going to dominate this thing. And, and even if we do get to saying as a committee, yes, now the debate is what does it look like? You know, is it 90 seconds? Is it two different clocks? Is the restart? If, if you're shooting on me and I make a save, but you pick it up, do you get a new 90? Is it a 60? Is it a 45? You know, how complicated do we want to make this for the average fan? Um, I think that's a huge part of it, right? Right. You don't, you want to make everything really simple. And you want to make things simple. Yeah. If, if making it right is complicated and making it wrong is simple, you know, which, which, where out of the spectrum yeah, are you? Get it. Or, uh, I've always said, if you really want a fast game, get rid of the backup shot rule. Have <laughs> shot clock, get rid of the backup shot rule. Now you're like every other sport, you know, you shoot, you shoot it out of bounds. The other team's ball, you're going. That's a so, good point. If you want a really fast game. That's what we do. There was one concept thrown out there of a scoring clock. I don't know if there's any sport has a scoring clock. No. Like, Let's say it was a 90-second shot clock. No, you have 90 seconds to score. Like, yeah, that would be similar. Save, you pick it up, you, 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 you still only have that total of 90 seconds to score. You know, that would really make things fast. But yeah, it, um, I'm not sure we're going to go to a scoring clock in this conversation. No, I, I, don't th- I don't know if we're ready for that one. All right, one last thing to touch on. We've gone a little bit longer, but this has been a great conversation. Um, recruiting, right? So September 1 is a month away. Yes. Uh, and I've, you know, having – having recruited at Michigan through this 2020 class that's, that's going to now be accessible directly on September one. They're the one class that was kind of in limbo in when the rules changed. Right. And so, you know, now that I'm helping out with some organizations on the other side of this and talking to a lot of families about the recruiting process from their side of it, you know, there's so much confusion amongst, especially this class because so many kids were committed already. And then suddenly they have a year, a year and a half where they're no longer in touch directly with the coaches who, they committed to and the sense is that september 1 it's going to be the wild wild west for this class mm-hmm. coming up what's your sense of of how it's going to go for this class in particular when we get started again there'll be a significant portion of people who stay with their commitments uh you know they chose a school for a reason and you know some young men change some don't and so a lot of them will stay with you know who brought them to the dance you know their, their first love in a sense um but I do recognize a lot of coaches who have multiple verbal commitments already in the 2020 class are recognizing that this is going to be a shootout, that uh, new schools are going to jump in, pursue their verbal commitments. And, um, and we've been crystal clear right from the get-go that that will be our strategy as well. We actually have zero verbal commitments. We weren't doing any of their young stuff. And then the rules changed, so we couldn't even do it during you know, later sophomore year yeah. or this summer. And uh, I have to tell you, I'm ecstatic that, you know, there's some, some moments I'm like, we're at zero in this class, but 
I also know that we're fully funded. We're fully, we have all the scholarship money and, uh, and so we can attack this class. And so I, uh, I think there were some people thinking, you know, we got to wait till 2021 till it's really a free for all. But I, I think this, uh, because of the culture of, of not really recognizing verbal commitments and pursuing the best regardless, I think that's going to make this a, uh, a really exciting September. Okay. Uh, September one for sure. Yeah. And then as the, uh, as the month goes on, uh, you know, there'll be a lot of fun things and exciting things for the uh, lacrosse world to read about. Are you doing anything differently? Are you doing like more prospect weekends in the fall to get, to get more personal Ooh. looks at your kids to get to know some of them a little bit? We, uh, we're not doing more, but we shifted one and we, uh, we are actually September 2nd is a Sunday. So, sure. uh, yeah. <laughs> So September 1, the first day, is a Saturday, and we have a home football game. And so we're, we're advertising, you know, anybody can come, so we're not pinpointing sure, a certain yep. Hey, come early. Come to the football game. We can talk. You know, we can hang out. It's September 1, and do it right there in Charlottesville, Virginia, right on our campus. So we came up with this idea like six months ago. We're not the only ones, I'm sure. Um, but we – it was funny because as a staff, like, hmm, when do we advertise this? We don't want other people copying this idea. We thought it was such a good idea. And uh, so uh, we, we busted it out about a month and a half ago. And uh, we're excited to see uh, what that will be like. So then yeah. September 1, get some interactions on campus as well as the phone calls because there will be a lot of guys who aren't here, that's for sure. And then um, September 2, do the, do the camp uh, right here at the clinic. What is a, what is a Virginia lacrosse recruit? look like to you and not just physically but but what what's the x i mean there's so many good players out there yeah what are, what are the x factors that you're looking for you know for the guys that, that you want and has that changed at all from brown to virginia it's changed less um than maybe people would expect the to, to to step back a little bit when i first got to virginia i started recognizing the academic prowess of the school i knew it was a good school but i really started to understand like how difficult the school was when I realized there was three or four men on the team that we inherited who were really struggling and probably should not have been at the university. Of Virginia. Um, now they're going to graduate. Um, so they're not going to fail out, but started reflecting back, like what type of experience are these people having mm-hmm. when most of your classes are a struggle and you have a tutor in half your classes. That's not like, that doesn't sound like a fun way to live for four years. Um, and so to now step forward, Sean, Kip, and I have tried to follow a similar model that we had at Brown of looking for academically driven, strong students who are the best lacrosse players possible, you know, and, and really focusing on that academic piece. What is that challenge? Well, the challenge is now we find ourselves recruiting against really good schools. Sure. The Ivies, Duke, Notre Dame. Um, and so I can't just go into a recruiting battle necessarily and say, Hey, we're the best academic school. If we're going after the best academic students who are fantastic lacrosse players. So we're looking for those men who, who want to put their name on things and be the best at it and, and not just skate through school though. They're fantastic at lacrosse. And so we're looking for guys who want to be difference makers in just about everything they do. Um, and so it's, just, you know, sort of authentic and innovative people is really what we're, we're aiming for. And we aim for that at Brown. Um, so that is, that is our challenge. And um, with this class coming in, the 2018 class, we think we nailed it because we really like them athletically, but academically, they, they're, they're maybe better. It's a really strong class. Now, yes, there are exceptions. And that's what's great about what you couldn't do at Brown, but you can do at UVA, that maybe there's one or two guys who just aren't fantastic students, but they work hard. They're talking to guidance counselors, talking to the teachers, 
saying, hey, this guy puts in a good effort. Um, they may not be a straight A student, but I get their best. Okay, well, for one or two guys, we'll, we'll do that. And knowing that we have the academic support like you have at Michigan to help them get through those classes. But if they give their all in the classroom, then, uh, then we'll open arms to one or two of them a year. I feel like uh, one of the things that, that lacrosse is still missing as a sport, and maybe it's not missing it, it's just different than other sports. And, and you really feel this when you were at a school like Michigan or probably at a school like Virginia, I assume as well. How many sports are at Virginia? 27. Yeah, we had 31. And okay. lacrosse was literally, literally the only sport, all of all of them, that didn't have a legitimate professional and or Olympic carrot at the end. Oh, wow. Every <laughs> single other sport does, right? Whether it's rowing or tennis or soccer or oh. hockey or whatever it is, their elite athletes in those sports, hell, swimming, half the team would go swim in the Olympics. Their elite athletes in every one of those teams were striving towards the pinnacle of their sport. Yeah. Interesting. And that's, that was their, and they could still be good students, but they, that's was their carrot at the end. And then yeah. the other players on the team had that there, right? Like I'm, you know, I'm in the, our swimmers for four years, we're in the pool with Michael Phelps every day. Right. And so, huh. you know, that's, and, and a bunch of other Olympic swimmers, like these are the guys, even the ones that weren't going to go to the Olympics. Like these are the guys I'm watching train. Lacrosse doesn't have that. And I think it's maybe the Olympics helps that. Right. And, and changes that. Um, but it's an, I think it's an interesting cultural dynamic for our sport. Sure. Where everybody, the entire team is yeah. maybe a little bit more academically driven than athletic driven because that's where their future is. Right. Which yeah. is fine. It's just a different culture. Yeah. That's interesting. I really thought of it that way. Yeah. And, and, um, and maybe that's why in our sport, um, the college game, you know, it is the elite, you know, we get the most attention, yep. you know, uh, we don't have pro lacrosse coaches, you know, or getting podcasted that much or on TV that much or, yeah. I will though. I'm going to podcast one or two of them. So, okay, good. I'll get yeah, get some stag get stag yeah absolutely. I'll get stags. I'll get Bear Davis. I'll get some of those guys in here. Yeah. Stagnita will be running the podcast, by the way. He'll, okay. He'll, yeah. He'll be running it when yeah. you'll be answering his questions. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, last, so last question about recruiting. Um, you know, I'm doing this right now for Adrenaline, and, and they obviously represent kids from the West, and you started coaching in the West. Yes. How, how incredible has it been to see the transformation from when you started coaching in the West, in California, to where it is now, the kind of kids that are coming out of there, the kind of teams they're playing for? Yeah. It's, it's a different world. It's awesome. And let me start this off by saying I, I take zero credit, actually probably negative credit. I think about some of the things I was trying to do when I was a young head coach or oh, young I, coach. I apologize to the guys who played for me 20 years ago. Oh my God. I'm, like, I'm sorry. Oh. I sucked. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Some of the things I was teaching, yeah. but um, it is amazing. Cause as I was saying, I, I, you know, eight games, four, four home games on a baseball field. Um, you know, to what it is now over 300 programs and these fantastic club programs and to see the West coast stars come in and see adrenaline, what they're doing with uh, so many young men and girls. It's, it's, it's fantastic. It's amazing. But it was really saw that shift. I don't know, maybe a dozen years ago or so where you'd go watch, I, I would go watch Texas or California lacrosse and watch this, especially this half field setup, the six V six. And I was like, okay, let's see what offense this is going to look like. And, and then all of a sudden this transformation happened where, wow, I could be in Maryland right now. They just dived on me. Yep. Do a slide. 
bang the ball, the defense, U-turn recovery, all right? The guy at X is pushing a back pipe, hitting the side, boom, re-dodge. I'm like, oh, my God. I mean, who are these Paul Bunyans? Somebody's right. done a great job of teaching these young people. And, and those are the people who started these grassroots organizations to develop the skills, but then other people who understood schemes and just this confluence all coming together. It's, uh, it's fantastic. It's really, really amazing. And, uh, um, I, I, I love watching it. I love getting out to California for, you know, for personal reasons. And, and, uh, but just it's cause there is good lacrosse everywhere. The, the, this, there's still a core. There's still yeah. right there in Long Island no and Baltimore yeah. and Philly and upstate, but, it is uh, it is fantastic the uh, the amount of uh, opportunities that uh, these guys are creating for themselves because they're playing at such a high level and the athleticism is 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 clearly evident that they've got that uh, being able to play year round outside and get up and down it's um yeah it's really I'm really excited to see where this goes with West Coast Lacrosse. So last uh, last thing and I went way over the time that I thought I was going to do I appreciate your patience and and talking for so long but this was fun. Uh, same question that I asked Pat a week ago. If, if you were doing this and you could ask any coach anything about what they do or, or how they got there, whatever it is, throw a question at me. What do, what do you want me to ask another coach? What's one that comes up for you a lot when you're talking to other coaches? Huh. Um, well, I, I, there's a couple things, but one, are you working on your weaknesses? What are your weaknesses? I mean, are you really thinking about them? Are you addressing them? Um, is it an emotional thing? Is it, do you yell too much? Uh, do you, do you, does fear strike your heart, you know, when you're down four goals? Uh, is it a tactical issue? Are you, are you, uh, is it self doubt? What is it? What is it? And are you attacking it? Uh, that would be my biggest thing as a leader of a program, you know, making sure you understand who you are and make yourself better. Um, the second piece would be, and what I've always thought about is preparing for a game would you rather have your men over-prepared or under-prepared? We all want to be that magical, yeah. perfectly prepared. But, you know, as you're getting close to it, do you stop? Oh, you know, I'd rather be a little under-prepared, you know, and just be a little more free-minded, or I'd rather be a little over-prepared, you know, and just understanding at what point is too much and uh, really sort of assessing yourself that way as a coach. Yeah, well, that's going to be in the next podcast. So tune in to whoever I talk to and – you can see what they say about it. I think it's going to be Dylan Sheridan. So you can, you can. All right, Dylan. Yeah, you can get, you can get Dylan's viewpoint. He's a thinker. He's a thinker. He's understanding. Dylan is a thinker. Yeah. He, yeah. He's he listening, is. asking questions. He's, he's going to be really good. Yeah, he will be. Um, well, I appreciate it, man. This was fun. Thanks a lot for it taking some time out of your vacation. And Yeah, uh, I'm going to go play some lacrosse now. Get the uh, 45 you. and over division. Yeah, good for you. Don't pull anything, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> be healthy out there. Well, it's, right. good to, it's good to see you. It's good to talk to you, and, uh, and we will catch up again soon. Enjoy the rest of your August. Yeah, enjoy the rest of the summer, John Paul. All right. All right. See you, buddy. 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 So that was a pretty great conversation with Lars Tiffany. You know, I enjoyed it. I hope, uh, hope you did too. Got a lot of really good stuff out of that. Um, I was just fascinated to hear about his experience coaching with the Iroquois Nationals at the World Games. Um, I think, you know, the opportunity for somebody like a Lars Tiffany, who is not native himself, to be involved with a team like that. And there are a lot of people who coach 
internationally, you know, outside of their own nation. It happens in soccer all the time. It happens in a lot of major sports. It happens in lacrosse too. A lot of Americans, Canadians go coach um, other national programs, but to coach for the Iroquois, uh, I think is a really, really special opportunity because of the relationship between their people and our sport. And, uh, and it's a, it's a great opportunity to get this kind of inside view into their cultural relationship with lacrosse. So fascinated by that. Um, <clears throat> really interested to hear Lars take on, uh, what it takes to be an elite athlete. He certainly coached many of them and, you know, to him, it, it breaks down to, um, this, incredible hunger for the game, a joy and, and passion for the game, um, but also a hunger to, to keep going at it, to, to keep getting after it. You know, he has the, he tells a story about Doc's Aiken, and uh, shooting, taking lefty shots out in the cold in a t-shirt and shorts and getting reps, you know, over and over and over and sitting in the front row in their culture and, and leadership meetings and soaking that stuff up and being really engaged and, and, you know, the impact on him certainly as a player and the ability to get to improve because he's doing all that, but also the incredible impact that can have, especially when your best players are that engaged and, and push themselves that hard, how that can filter down and establish culture. And that's something that, you know, if you're listening to, to this as a young player um, and, and you're, you know, in, in any kind of leadership position on your team, as one of the better players on the team, you know, that's what I urge you. One of the best things you can do as a leader is to just show that hunger. And, and, you know, we talked in the last episode with Pat Myers about being coachable and how, what an impact that can be, be coachable, set that great example. And we talk a lot about leading by example. And, and I think there's some truth to that, but, uh, I think it's more than that. I think it's 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 pushing others and, and pulling others along with you. But that example is so important and it's so powerful when your best players are doing it. And, you know, Lars really hit that home with, with some of the guys that he's been exposed to. Um, before we go today, uh, I always have my follow of the week. And uh, this week's follow of the week is uh, Jerry Raganese, who is – you probably know, a professional lacrosse player for the New York Lizards, a face-off guy, um, partners with Greg Grenlian and the Face-Off Academy. Uh, I follow Jerry on Instagram, and to me personally, he's fascinating, not just because he's a great face-off guy and a great teacher of the game, he's also a world-class chef uh, as a hobbyist, and he posts a lot on Instagram. If you don't follow him, he has like 14,000 followers, but if you don't, do. It's really interesting to watch him do what he does. I cook. I love cooking. It's a hobby of mine. I'm not as good as he is, um, but, uh, but I'm decent at it, and, and I'm fascinated watching him do his thing. Uh, and he's, he's got a real Asian bent to what he does, too, and, and I travel to Japan a lot, know that food well, so really cool to see him um, really diving into the details of cooking a lot of the Asian food that he does, and, and he does a, an incredible job at it. So um, that's the follow of the week. I think it's, you know, it's interesting to see somebody like him who's obviously dedicated his life to lacrosse, but also has this other interest that it's apparent. Uh, it's obvious he's just as passionate about and, and is, you know, has really bared down to make himself really, really good at it just as he has at lacrosse. And, uh, I think it's a good lesson there. You know, you don't have to be focused on just one thing. And if you're really going to dive in and commit yourself to something, you can get great at it. 
And uh, there's a guy who's been who's become great at at two things: lacrosse and cooking. Fascinating to watch. So give him a follow. Flogo F L O W G O thirty seven on Instagram. All right, that's episode five. We'll be back next time, episode six, pretty soon here, where uh, we're going to have an interview with Cleveland State head coach Dylan Sheridan, who's going into his third season now uh, of varsity lacrosse at Cleveland State. And I'm really looking forward to that one. So until then, this is John Paul for the Adrenaline Podcast. Talk to you next time.